Good morning, good afternoon. What's new in adaptive physical education audience? Um, I'm going to leave this one really brief. I've been trying to get this one out for like over a week. I've had it done, but I am in the middle of Campabilities Texas and getting ready for Campabilities Michigan. And anyone that has done Campabilities knows how busy you get. Uh, we're running a study right now too with some of the kids from uh, Campabilities and going really, really well. But I'm just going to get this one going. The part, the panelists are people that have started Campabilities around the country. And in this episode, they talk about the benefits of Campabilities. Um, they talk about why it's important. The physical activity component is important for people with visual impairments. They talk about some of the equipment that's used. Um, it goes really, really in depth. And we talk even a little bit about philosophical points of view with physical activity and people with visual impairments. I hope you enjoy. Um, and I'll have the last episode out in a few short weeks. Take care, have a great summer, and be safe. Any more benefits that anyone can think of that Campabilities gives directly to our kids that they walk away from? Are people using assessments, tools, and things like that and gauging certain benefits or activity levels? Um, that's a, a great question. This is Lauren speaking, Scott. This, we, we didn't assess the kids like the first couple of years of camp but what I noticed was our our counselors would like clap for the kids or cheer for them when they did something that wasn't really that good they would just jump off the diving board or they would like do a forward roll and everybody say yay and I thought you know that child can perform much better than that but people didn't know because we had no assessment so I had every specialist make an assessment for each sport. So it looks at the skill skill level, and then it also looks at level of attendance. And then there's content that people can make. So uh, so every one of the sports during the day at our campus, it has an assessment. And that assess and the parents get two copies. One, the parents get to keep, and one goes to the physical education teacher. And so people don't have these low expectations for the kids. I mean, I have people that will clap for a child just running down the track when I know that that kid can do a seven-minute mile. You know, I think that people need to know that the skill level of the kids. And the other thing I found is uh, when we, we also record the distance that everybody bikes, the distance they swim, and the distance and time that they run, their expectation or their limits that the kids originally perceive for themselves totally changed during the week. Like, I have kids, the most they've ever ridden in their life is three miles at once. I have kids riding 11 and 12 miles in an hour. You know, that that's something that they never knew that they could do. And so we have a poster that the kids record every single day that they do one of those endurance activities. And so they get to either take home that strip or take a picture of it and, and um, understand their potential where they wouldn't have known that before if we didn't assess. Assessment is key. Also, that's why we have one of our mottos is believe you can achieve because I don't want the kids to believe you can participate. Believe you can achieve, not just participate, right? Sure. That's a, that's a good uh, talking point too. So what, what is 
Can someone explain that difference to me? Like, so what's the difference between achieving and participating? I was just going to say, I'm not sure you can say that on the podcast because it's copyrighted. So you might have to work with the people who have the copyright for that <laughs> phrase. No, you can say it. You can say it, but you just have to, you just have to give us credit. <laughs> copyright, Lauren Lieberman, believe you can achieve. So what's the difference between participating and achieving? What does that mean? This is Lauren speaking. Like to me, I think some of the kids, for so much of their lives, everybody celebrates them just going through the motions, and people don't have expectations for them to really achieve. And I've even walked into classrooms where it's it's black and white. One side of the gym, the kids are actually assessing and writing down their scores and looking at the rubric and improving, and the other side of the gym, the kids are just going through the motions. And that that's not okay, and it shouldn't be acceptable for them for their parents or for the teacher. This is Wilma, and I lost my sight just before I turned 18, and I was an athlete at the time. And I did achieve, and once I lost my eyesight, I just kind of participated in the different things that I learned at the School for the Blind. But I didn't find out about the USABA until 86, which was 15 years later. And I didn't find out about the USABA, I mean, about the uh, National Beatball Association until 2009. And once I started doing that and started, when I first went to the USABA and I was able to actually run and compete, and I was able to power lift and compete, and I came back home with all these gold medals and everything, I was just, it was just, oh my God, it was the greatest thing. And I didn't find out about this until I was 32. And when I talk to the parents and the kids, I tell them, you don't want your kids to uh, have to be that old before they find out about the gratification in achieving uh, instead of just participating in this sport. And last year I went, I haven't shot a bow and arrow since I was 10 years old. And last year I got my certification to help teach archery. So those things, when you can compete and actually achieve something, when you can say, I did this, and you get such a, such a great feeling about doing that kind of thing, and that's, that's the biggest difference between participating. Just participating, you're just, you're just a body. You're just a body there. You're a number. All right. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, I think that's an interesting uh, topic. Now, I'm going to move on and talk a little bit more about uh, capabilities as a whole now. And I have a question that I want to feel to everyone. But I think some people, um, they, they go to the, these camps or uh, capabilities. They wonder why this camp isn't available to kids of all disabilities. If I have a kid with Down syndrome or if I have a child with um, uh, CP, why is that? Why are they someone might feel like they're being excluded. So can we talk a little bit about why we chose to just have a camp for the blind and not open that up to other disabilities? You know, when we think of the, all the disability groups out there, uh, one of the most severe disabilities is visual impairment. And I think that um, the incident is such that the demographics and the numbers of blind and communities are so small that for kids who are blind or visually impaired, it may be their only opportunity to meet someone who's blind. We have school districts where there's, you know, 2,000 kids in the district and there's one child who's blind or visually impaired. 
Uh, there's lots of kids with Down syndrome. There's lots of special ed classes, but they're only they're the only child in, in regular education who's um, blind or visually impaired. So the opportunity for them to develop a sense of community is a big part of camp. Um, they keep connected after camp. They stay. They establish friendships that are long, long lasting, and um, really support them as they move forward. We all need support networks and. Um, we all have different alliances that we uh, form. So for, for someone who's blind or visually impaired, it's important for them to be a part of that community. And that's, at least that's my belief. I also think there's a difference between, let's say, like the Paralympics and Special Olympics. Well, both great models, um, they're very separate and different. Where, uh, you know, the Special Olympics, everybody's participating and earning medals. Where the Paralympics is this high level of competition. Um, and so we want to provide those opportunities to our students because like that, participation versus achievement, we really want to push that achievement level. And, and I also started camp, one of the reasons why I started it was because our, my students needed somewhere where they're going to be trained and learn how to teach kids with visual impairments. And so, and, and I also feel like with Special Olympics and with, we have United Cerebral Palsy near us, there, there are opportunities for most other disabilities. And, um, and then the other thing I think too is related to equipment is equipment and sports are unique to the kids with visual impairments. And I also found that when you try to fund a multiple disability program, you can't really affiliate always with one funding source. And with, with a single disability program, we often, like, you know, we're connecting with Lavelle or we're connecting with, um, let's say, APH, you know, for some, grant, for some research money. You know, you can you can actually have um, a more of a unique, uh, I don't want to say identity, when you have that one disability category. And, and like Kathy said, I think it's a really good point, you know, that for the kids to create their identity and feel like they're part of that blind community when they come to Camp Abilities. This is Wilma speaking again. When Before we started our camp, when I got back home, um, speaking of which, Lauren's second job should be a motivational speaker. <laughs> because uh, just after talking to her just a little bit, I was motivated to come back to St. Louis and get started. But I did a little research, and there are so many camps around Missouri and St. Louis especially that have um, camps for all these children with problems with their limbs or everything else, but there were no camps for visually impaired children. There's one other one, and they only teach sports two days for that whole through period, just two days. And um, I thought this would be really great. We're not equipped yet to handle the deaf slash blind or anything like that, but I just think it's great to have one for the visually impaired kids. I want to go back to something that Lauren said, and... Talked, she said that you know getting the equipment is sometimes a, a lot different for people that are visually impaired versus some other disabilities. And if someone could just touch on some of the different pieces of equipment they're using that are specially designed for kids with visual impairments and maybe something that PE teachers could also use in their classes, I think that would be really helpful. As far as equipment goes, um, you have your blind sports, so goalball, um, five-side soccer, beat baseball, um, and, and they each have their specific pieces of equipment. The soccer ball, for example, will have rattles in it that provides a nice rich sound um, that, that really is able to uh, allow the students to locate as Justin holds up the soccer ball. Ah, prepared. Um, so so that, those rattles um, make a really nice sound even when the ball is rolling slowly so the students can locate it. Um, beat baseball, obviously the, the, 
the baseball beeps. Um, goal ball, which has two bells in it um, for, for uh, the game to be played. Um, but then other pieces of equipment, um, you know, using sound sources, a APH product, um, bell balls that are from Flag House. They're, they're really good um, for all sorts of different things. So those are some things that we use. Um, talking pedometers. So, yeah. so I'm yeah. sitting in my office when we do this, and I keep all this stuff within arm's length because when students come in and we talk about this type of stuff, I, I just reach over to my shelf. So I have a rattle soccer ball under my desk. I have a beep kickball under my desk, and this is the sound that that makes. I have a sound source made by beep kickball. This is a prototype they made a couple of years ago, which is very loud. I have a talking pedometer, and I love talking pedometers, and we've done research on talking pedometers to determine how accurate they are, and they're, they're accurate enough. They're, they're more challenging to find nowadays, though, because people are moving to using Fitbits and things like that, which Matt and I recently found out are also accurate. So FYI, Fitbit Zips, accurate for people who have visual impairments at normal walking speeds, not at fast walking speeds. Um, I also have a tether, which is something that we use for running and walking and such. I do think... You know, you had this question before about uh, why camp exists for kids that are blind, and I think the centralization of equipment is essential. If you have one kid with a visual impairment in a school, a teacher is not going to find all this equipment. Now, a lot of it you might be able to get for free through APH, um, but teacher, phys ed teachers typically don't know that. I would say 95% of phys ed teachers are unaware that that equipment is available to them. And so our camps have all this equipment, and they have it all within one place, right? So it makes physical activity a lot easier. We also know from a research perspective that people that are blind or visually impaired tend to be among the least active people with disabilities. And in schools, they tend to be the least included in PE classes, right? So the, and, and I think a big reason for this is the lack of equipment and accessibility. You know, it's, it's not easy to keep all this really accessible stuff in every single school that's ever going to have a kid with a visual impairment. Whereas other disabilities, you know, the, the modifications in the equipment, it, it might not be as much if a child has a physical disability like cerebral palsy or if they have a hearing impairment. You don't need specialized equipment as much as you need open-mindedness and um, the ability to accommodate their needs. Well said. Wow. That was, uh, yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, I feel like you've presented that before or <laughs> that was very good. And then, so what if I don't have access to all those pieces of equipment? And Justin, I'm going to have to get that resource from you later so I can share that on, on my blog as well uh, for that free equipment. Um, but if I have a lack of, you know, resources financially to get some of those, what are some of the things that I can still do to make sure that they're active in a PE or PA uh, setting? Well, you know, Matt, Matt and I have done a few papers on, like, different strategies for a couple of different, like, teaching type journals before and we have lists of them and i could share the list with you and you could post that list on your website uh we did it years ago for the division of visual impairment in the council for exceptional children and there's it's it's kind of a spectrum from how much equipment you have right so if you have the if you have the aph stuff it's wonderful like if you have a rattle soccer ball fantastic if you don't have that rattle soccer ball you could take a soccer ball and put it in a plastic bag and it'll make noise while it's moving on the floor, right? So there's the equip you having the equipment, and then there's if you don't have the equipment or if your school doesn't have the money to fund something, everybody could get a plastic bag from a supermarket, 
right? Everybody could have somebody clap instead of having a sound source. So there's really a spectrum of what you could do with how much equipment you have. This is Wilma, and I don't know about the other schools, but Missouri School for the Blind is very good about loaning out some equipment to uh, different groups that might need to use it for an event or might need to use it to show to other people. They, uh, Mr. Barney has no problem with allowing you to use their equipment. So you might, you know, some of the parents or the other schools might be able to borrow some equipment from one of the schools for the blind. Same with us at our camp. If I'm not using it, why should it sit on my shelf? Come take it, use it. We loan it out to school districts. We even transport bikes over to school districts when they have biking programs and bring a tandem over there. If they got a pilot, we'll teach them how to be a pilot and let them use it for as long as they need it. How, how are they aware? How are schools and, and whatnot aware of the th- this resource? Yeah, for us, for our campers, we just tell them. Okay. We just think, any, anybody who needs equipment, come get it. Um, we let our school districts know. We're in most, we have 59 school district contracts, and we're out providing services in districts, and we let them know that it's here. And, and uh, Kathy, can you just real quickly give us a brief description of the organization that you're, uh, that you're working for and you're referring to? Sure. I'm with the Central Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. We're a private, not-for-profit agency in upstate New York. We serve eight counties, and we serve individuals from birth to the very elderly. Um, So about 1,500 individuals a year we see. Um, Interesting sidebar, after I left the summit in Utah, um, oftentimes I do my best thinking when I'm traveling. And I came back, and I said, you know, us camp is great and it's important for us to see kids when at camp when they turn eight but we have early intervention kids and we need to be passing balls to them when they're two we need to get kids on bikes when they're four we don't need to wait for camp to happen it needs to happen at all the natural ages that the kids do those things and so we've started to do that within our organization we see about 300 kids a year who are blind um all itinerant so we're out in the community um most of my tra- staff travel anywhere from an hour to two hours to see kids in their home communities. And as I said, I got 59 school districts that we're contracted for providing services to. Um, so we're a fairly large organization in upstate New York, and we're blessed um, to have the support that I have to run camps. Myself and the board of directors and our agency thought we did really well with rehabilitation, but we didn't know how well we could do until we started adaptive sports. Um, it revolutionized our belief system. It revolutionized what we think of people's potential. And um, we saw changes that we were so fast and so quick for those we'd served for many, many years um, who weren't making progress uh, that I would encourage all agencies for the blind to think of adaptive sports because it's one of the strongest rehabilitations, if not the strongest rehabilitation program we can offer. Because when we can change a person's perception of themselves and their own ability, then the therapy we provide, the vision rehab therapy, the orientational ability, the TVI services technology will exponentially speed up because they believe in themselves. And the only way you can do that is through adaptive sports programming. At least that's all we've discovered. Yeah, Kathy, I just, I, I think it, it, I agree with you and it, it means so much coming from you because you're on the rehab side of it. Um, and the way you've embraced physical activity, it really kind of, you know, I think it makes us all feel really good because that's what we chose to do as a career path. Uh, so yeah, if you, I mean, writing a paper or a book on that would be, would be very interesting and very motivational. The other thing that we've just discovered through our adult programming is that you're never fully adjusted to vision loss. 
so we do adaptive sports and rec for our adults as well. And I've had some very successful um, co-workers who are blind or visually impaired, graduated from college, have successful professional lives, and through getting involved in our adaptive sports program, have grown even more. So they may be 45 years old, and they've learned a, a, a huge amount about themselves through a, through recreation and sport. It's pretty amazing. Um, and so we're so grateful as an organization to have found the opportunity to provide it, and we can't grow fast enough. What you're doing is fantastic. I want to know real quick, how did, how did each of you become involved in capabilities? And let's be as brief as possible, because I know all of us can go on and on about it. And maybe what were one or two of the challenges that you had while trying to start your own capabilities? Because I know for myself... Um, you know, trying to get that core group of people around me to help out was really difficult at times. Uh, and also uh, the financial part was always a difficult part. So what, how did you get involved? Um, and also what were some of the challenges in getting them starting? This is Wilma. I met Lauren last year in New York at the Beatball World Series. And I saw her maybe maybe 30 minutes one day and 15 or 20 minutes the next day and we passed each other a few times during the week and as I said her second job should be a motivational speaker because by the time she finished just she didn't ask me to start one she just told me about it but I was ready to come home and start one up and the easy part was getting the board and the, getting the people to help me the trainers and the people to volunteer the hardest part is getting the kids uh, getting the parents to sign their kids up. That's part of probably our hardest part right now. Uh, it's Kath. I'll, I'll jump in because um, my similar story is similar to Wilma's and that it was just through meeting Lauren. I was frustrated. We, we were offering some, we thought, phenomenal rehab programs for our children. Um, we would have, oh, maybe an adaptive tech camp on the weekend or we would do vision rehab therapy and couple it with orientation mobility. And believe it or not, I don't know why, but no one would come. None of the kids would sign up. They wouldn't come. And uh, how silly are we? So we, uh, I met a friend of mine in uh, New York State, and uh, I was telling her how frustrated I was. And I was saying, you know, what can we do? I'm, I'm just at a loss. And she said to me, have you ever met Lauren Lieberman? And I said, no. You know, I was a rehab person. I wasn't an adaptive sports um, individual. And she said, you got to meet her. you got to go out and find out who she is. And so I just called her, and I said, you know, Janice told me to call you. Um, I'd love to come find out more about camp. And so we went to that first camp in 2013, I think it was. And uh, we met before, just before that camp, and then we came to camp. And she was so welcoming and so supportive and willing to lend us for us to do our first camp. And then it just went like wildfire. Once we started to have success, why, why haven't we been doing this all along? And what's great for us as a rehab agency, I can still do vision rehab therapy. I can still do orientation mobility. I can still do tech training. And I can sandwich it around all the wonderful adaptive sports, which are going to draw kids to us. Um, so it's really a, a holistic approach to rehabilitation. I was I was talking to, just a side note, um, after the, the summit, I was talking to Justin, and it was all AER stuff. Um, but I was telling Justin how like it'd be great to have like a position paper or, or somewhere where we can... I don't know what you call it. And that was part of the problem is I don't know how to identify this thing. But kind of what you're saying, Kathy, is like, you know, how can physical activity do more than just increase your own health? It's going to build holistically, like you've said. And so, you know, to get 
get it from you and get it from um, Lauren and other AER members and just kind of come up with this position on what physical activity can do for the area of visual impairments for, you know, people that are involved in AER, TVIs, O&Ms, you know, other agencies. It's just, it's good stuff. So position paper. Yeah. Maybe that's what it's called. I don't know. Or dear colleague letter. You know, to jump on that, going in another thing, I did a poster session just the other day on um, how exercise was recently found to be an evidence-based practice by the MPDC in autism. Um, you know, another disability, but we had a lot of people attend and every single person said it was at an autism research convention and everyone said, what are the outcomes besides physical and fitness health, you know, levels? And I think we got, you know, it's, we had those, you know, we had the social components and cognitive skills and behavioral outcomes that were attached. But for whatever reason, although that physical and fitness part is extremely important, a lot of other fields are so focused on those other outcomes and we need to show those outcomes as well. I mean, that is what APE is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, sure, the, the health outcomes and all the physical outcomes, but man, look at everything else that we're touching on. Social interaction, cognitive abilities, um, just like Kathy said, the holistic. I mean, great word, great concept. You know, you, you know Scott, there's a, there's a bit of a ph- philosophical debate out there with PE and adapted PE people as to whether we should be focusing on um, other outcomes as the cent- the center of our purpose, you know, and I, I my my position would be that the center of our purpose as PE and adapted PE people should be focusing on those health related fitness components, um, and the other things maybe the increased social skills and awareness or um, whatever other variables people want to look at should be. Uh, side side products, right, or byproducts. So we shouldn't be focusing, in my opinion, and this is an opinion, but we shouldn't be focusing on increasing social skills, but we should be measuring social skills as a byproduct of the increased physical activity and health. This is a debate, though, that I've heard quite a bit recently, so something to think about, have a position on. I think it's just a natural element of what we do. And so in order to create it make it as natural as possible, yeah, we teach to the sport and activity but then we embrace and we foster what naturally comes from that with the social interaction and, and all those benefits. I was just going to say, when we talk about somebody with a visual impairment and you're talking about this person as a whole, you're talking about this person's self-confidence um, and just how they identify themselves as a person with a visual impairment. I mean, what, what camp abilities has been doing, what sport, blind sports, recreation and leisure activities can do for that person are just so impactful, so powerful. Yeah, and, and this is Lauren speaking, and so um, this is an interesting point because this summer we're actually doing a study looking at what components of the expanded core curriculum we meet at camp and how we meet them. So in the field of visual impairment, the curriculum focuses on the expanded core curriculum, which is nine areas that also include socialization, independence, self-determination, orientation, mobility, recreation, and so what, what we want to show, we have several researchers coming from Vanderbilt University, and what we want to show is not only do we meet the expanded core curriculum components, all of them, but we meet them in a variety of ways uh, because, and, and Kathy does a great job of this at her camp, they do a lot of technology, that's another part of the expanded core curriculum. They also do cooking, um, they do a lot, of, a lot of components of the expanded core curriculum. And so my point is that um, 
that if we can show that we meet all the components of the expanded core, then any camp that needs funding might be able to get their children funded under an extended school year. So ESY funding can be applied to camp abilities because we are hitting them on all those important curricular areas. I think that's important to talk about. And to take, this is Kathy again, to take those activities that we did in isolation and apply them to a real life situation, like this year we're climbing Bald Mountain and the day before our kids are going to make their own lunches to climb for the next day. That's what they should be doing. But they're, now they're going to learn how to make a lunch. So it's taking those skills that we did in isolation as a rehab agency, whether it was orientation mobility, whether it was vision rehab therapy, and bring it into wiping up the tables because you're supposed to do that after lunch or sweeping the floor in the mess hall because that's part of our responsibilities at camp. Um, just putting it into a natural setting that it happens makes it more acceptable to the kids. It makes it more acceptable to all of us, really. Um, and motivational. And motivational. These kids are motivated to do it because, you know, the focus is climbing that mountain. But to get to that point, you got to wipe the table down before you can even take your first step uphill. I mean, incredible. Right. So this, Kathy brought up another good point. This is Lauren speaking, but um, I know there's. I had some kids who literally went to a work a vocational camp, and they just they 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 did fake jobs to practice vocational skills. And then I have other kids who went to a camp, and the camp was called Camp ADL, Activities of Daily Living. And they said they were embarrassed to tell their friends what camp they went to because their friends don't have to practice getting undressed and dressed and taking a shower and brushing their teeth. And so why not embed it into something that's, that you can talk about? You know, you, you can talk about going bowling or doing archery or climbing a mountain or riding a tandem bike and where you went on that bike. But, you know, talking about buttoning up your clothes to just unbutton them and put something else on, that's not anything worthy of, well, I mean, it's worthy of practicing, but you don't have anything functional to do with that. You know, to go to a fake job and do a fake vocational skill, to me, just is, is just so isolating. And, to, and here, we, we have work experience positions that we offer. They put out equipment. We have positions where our um, adolescent athletes can... They can coach a sport. They can come and they can coach track and field. They can work in the kitchen and they can work with the athletes. And that's a functional skill. It's not fake. They're not doing it just to unravel it. They're gonna they're gonna wipe the table just to get it dirty again to wipe the table. I mean, they're really wiping the table because somebody ate there, and they're making it functional so that we can move the table so that we can have a talent show. That is what we should be doing. And and I think that that um, there's a lot. More, and I think Erin Kavanaugh said that that only part of what the kids learn is the sports. There's so many other pieces of camp.
another thing that's been, I think, kind of amazing, um, at least with our camp and our depth of sports program, is we're reaching a uh, part of our community that probably didn't have any contact with the Central Association for the Blind before. A group of athletes um, out there who are learning about us and increasing their awareness of, of those with visual impairment and what their capabilities are. And I'm hopeful that as our kids move on to college and graduate from college and they go to apply for a job with a local employer, that employer will say, gee, you know, I, I did this cycling thing with the Ride for Missing Children one year and there was this really cool group of people who were blind and visually impaired who trained and, and, and excelled and did really well. And uh, I realized that there's potential for those with visual impairment. So if you have the credentials that I'm looking for, I definitely want you to apply and I'm going to give you an opportunity. And so I think that that message of... Um, education that goes on through all of our communities, whether it's a running group that we're getting involved in our camp or an archery group, but the fact that we're all trying to change our little corners of the world, I, I think is um, an amazing thing. Well, I just, it, it's really us changing just people's perspective of, of you know, what, what it's like to have a visual impairment. And it's more than just sport. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, so Wilma, at Wilma's camp, she's bringing in to uh, sport, she's bringing in a goalball team, she's bringing in the beat baseball team, she's bringing in local athletic teams and people who are athletes to teach those sports. And so the other byproduct of our camps are that some of our kids have been recruited for the local beat baseball team. And so, uh, so not only getting to meet people in the community who are doing blind sports, but then also having them see how good our kids are with the potential of them getting involved in their community sports. And I just, what Kathy said just reminded me of that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with, with the St. Louis camp and all the different um, sports teams that are coming there, seeing all the kids in the talent pool that we'll have at the camp. It's going to be exciting. That's really good. All right, that's a wrap. We're going to have the last episode on and very soon and I got to go get back to camp and get back to the kids and doing what I love. Take care and see you soon.